Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gordon with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by uh, Boris Hersink, who is the author of National Party Organizations and Party Brands in American Politics, the Democratic and Republican National Committees, 1912 to 2016, which is a long period of time. Um, and Boris talks about in the book, um, amassing a lot of information to try to understand the national committees during that period of time. Um, this book was published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Uh, and I'd like to welcome Boris Hersink to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, how did I get to the project? Well, first of all, a little about myself. I'm an associate professor at the Department of Political Science at Fordham University. Um, I got my PhD at the University of Virginia a couple of years ago. Um, in the kind of research I do, I mostly look at uh, party organizations, um, campaigns and elections, um, and sort of the historical elements to it. Um, and the, the way I sort of ended up with this project was um, sort of related actually to comp studying, um, which a lot of people are, are sort of down on comps as a, as a, a thing that grad students spend time on, but it actually worked out very nicely for me, uh, which is I read uh, Dan Galvin's book um, on uh, presidents and uh, parties and sort of the role that presidents play in uh, mostly not working with their parties. Um, and that sort of had sort got me thinking about, okay, well, what, what do national party organizations do when there's not a president? Um, and then it turned out there was already a good book about that too, which was uh, Phil Klinkner's uh, work. Uh, but the combination of the two sort of got me thinking more about um, what is it that national committees actually do with their role in the party um, and how does it relate with uh, other things we know about political parties and, and sort of their goals. And, um, and that combined sort of became the, the focus of the project. And we recently saw Vivek Ramaswamy um, at the last um, Republican debate um, asking Rana McDaniel to come up on stage and resign as chair of the Republican National Committee. And this seemed to be like a nice exclamation point um, on some of your research. Um, So with that intro, um, can you talk a bit about um, what it is that we're thinking about when we're thinking about the the Republican and Democratic National Committees, um, their chair or not, um, and and how they operate. Yeah. So traditionally, when political scientists have looked at national committees, they usually think of them as what's called service providers. And the idea is essentially that national committees uh, do helpful things to uh, basically make life easier for candidates. So one of the big things they always have to do is organize national conventions that happen every four years. They raise lots of money um, to sort of help uh, candidates out. They provide campaign advice uh, and support. Um, and all those things are incredibly important and, and really um, interesting and relevant and appreciated. Um, but there's also an additional layer to sort of what I argue in the book that national committees uh, do, or at least traditionally did, um, which is try to help create a party brand. 
And a party brand is basically the idea that uh, the understanding that the voter has of what you get if you vote for a Democrat or a Republican. And particularly in congressional literature, um, those party brands are really important. It's basically a core explanation for why members of Congress give up some form of power to party leaders. Um, but usually it's sort of limited to thinking about Congress. Um, and, and one of the things I argue in the book is that we have to think of these party brands as much broader. They're essentially these things that party, all types of party activists and leaders and elected officials are sort of continuously competing with each other to try to influence, to sort of create that idea of what do you get if you vote for a Democrat? What do you get if you vote for a Republican? Um, and the national committees are sort of a, a perfect um, tool to try to um, help shape that brand because they are the only organizations that actually re- represent the full party as a national institution. So everybody else, you know, you've got the, the the party caucuses in Congress, you've got organizations representing the different, the Democratic governors and Republican governors, you've got mayor's organizations, all those represent sort of parts of the par- of the, the country where the party's actually been winning. The national committee is the only one that, that represents the entire country at all times. Um, and so they, over time, have sort of taken it upon themselves to say, we are the organization that should be sort of trying to set what that party brand is for the national party. Um, and they also then invest lots of money and resources over time in trying to create publicity divisions to essentially promote what they think the right version of the party is. Um, and so the books sort of charged over time situations where we see these national committees really invest lots of uh, resources into trying to do that trying to come up with new communication tools um, and also trying to really shape a specific message for what they think the party should represent. Um, where the sort of more recent shenanigans with the RNC uh, sort of pop up and, and sort of go out of sync with that story is that over time we see that role also disappear essentially. Um, and there's a couple of reasons and maybe we want to talk about that more later, but there's a couple of reasons for why over time that becomes much harder for the national committees to sort of maintain that role. Um, and the book, sort of ends on a relatively pessimistic note where, um, you know, it, it I essentially argue that um, that, you know, option no longer really is on the table. Like the national committees can't really do that anymore uh, in comparison to at least how they try to do it in the past. Yeah. And, and I, I do want to get there, but mm-hmm. you have such a, a rich historical discussion within the book. I, I don't want to pass that by. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and and as somebody who um, studies American political development, it was very important and interesting to me to read that discussion. And so you're not necessarily talking about the existence of the parties since the late 1790s so much as you are talking about the frameworks that those early parties developed. But in the last hundred years, how more or less contemporary parties have operated particularly in relationship to the presidency. Um, and I always talk to my students about the fact that it's really hard to study the presidency without studying the parties because they are inextricably connected. So can you talk a little bit about sort of that connection between the evolution of the parties themselves and what you're looking at with regard to the party brands? Yes. So the the parties as these sort of like modern institutions mostly are sort of like an early 20th, late 19th, early 20th century invention. And um, there's a lot of uh, sort of historical work and also some political scientists uh, like uh, Daniel Klinghardt uh, have, have looked at sort of like the late 19th century as 
um, the sort of flipping point where due to a variety of changes, uh, the party suddenly developed this need to come up with a national argument for why voters should vote for them. Um, and, you know, prior to that, a lot of politics is more local. Um, a lot of uh, sort of activism is much more focused on like state party organizations. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, non-secret voting, which makes it easier to like bribe people. And then, you know, a lot of work uh, has focused on that element. Once that sort of changes, uh, once politics becomes more national, once uh, the parties can no longer as easily bribe voters, you have to come up with a reason for why a voter would show up to, to vote. Um, and that essentially is, you know, you have to make policy promises, but also those need to be somewhat coherent and easy to understand across the country. Um, and so if you have lots of politicians who are all calling themselves a Democrat, but are all completely all over the board, promising completely you know, different things and in contradiction to each other, as a voter, it just becomes very confusing to know uh, what to vote for. Um, and so uh, Jeff Grinovisky is a, 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 wrote a great book on, on party brands in Congress, has this really uh, smart metaphor that I totally stole, um, where he says, you know, it, it's comparable to like McDonald's franchises, right? Where if you go to a McDonald's, you have a certain expectation of what you're going to get. And that's true nationally, it doesn't make sense even internationally. Um, if you get ba- a bad experience, like you get cold French fries one time, probably that's okay. If you get it multiple times from the same restaurant, maybe you'll go to a different one. But if there's a couple of times where across different restaurants you get cold French fries, you might just skip McDonald's entirely. And so that's the essential party brand problem that the party has, that it has to provide voters with a reason to show up to vote for them. And also that they can't really control what all the different individual members of the party are telling voters, um, members of Congress, senators, uh, presidents, presidential candidates, even nonpartisan activists like, you know, uh, opinion writers or radio, radio hosts or TV hosts, etc. Um, and so you can't hurt all these people and you don't have the power to force them to say what you want them to say. And so essentially what national committees try to do starting in the early 20th century is to sort of drown them out by coming up with their own message and then using um, the uh, sort of pretty unique uh, investments they are able to make in uh, public, uh, public publicity tools to sort of, uh, uh, you know, share that across the country. Um, and so throughout the book, there's all these uh, pretty cool examples of, of national committees doing that, coming up with a new way to try to reach as many people as possible and basically just sort of like give them these really clear signals of like, this is what the actual Democratic Party position is right now. This is what the actual Republican position is. And the hope there is that that will sort of be uh, taken in by voters um, and convince them that that is actually what they're voting for. Um, and then hopefully, you know, moving forward, that that'll then become reality, essentially. So that's that's the as- attempt at essentially the party brand coming from the the sort of top of the umbrella, as opposed to sort of all the different pieces that are out there. Um, and, and we've seen some of this tension recently um, in the Republican Party. Um, you know, historically, this was certainly the case in in the 1970s. Um, and 80s in the Democratic Party um, with, you know, sort of different voices from lots of different places and and little coherence. But you're also talking about essentially the the way that a president in office works with or not um, with the parties, the the national 
parties and also how the party operates when they're out of the presidency. Um, and this is an important component to the entire research structure structure. So what is it that you have found or seen in terms of the, the dis, the distinction between what, what happens to the national committees when they're, they're in office as it were in the white house or when they're out of office in the right. white house. Um, so this is sort of building on, on a variety of research, right. That, that, that's been done in this sit milk as uh, was uh, my dissertation committee uh, wrote a great, you know, classic, uh, classic work on this, uh, Galvin's work on this, um, where essentially it's been looking at like, you know, what is the relationship between presidents and their parties and what, under what conditions are they willing to sort of work with the party or under what circumstances do they go it alone? Um, and essentially what that sets up is sort of uh, uh, one version of the world that is actually pretty straightforward to predict, which is if there's no president for a party in office, uh, the national committee has a lot of freedom to essentially do what it wants. And so that's where we really see these uh, sort of national committee chairs as entrepreneurs um, just pushing for whatever uh, image they think is best. Um, and that's also when the, the national committees are often quite controversial within the party, because you could have someone who's saying, you know, it's night, late 1950s, uh, the Democratic Party needs to be the anti-racist party, right? We need to kick out Southern Democrats, and we as the DNC are going to work on that. The reason that was possible to happen, um, and it did happen, is that um, there's no nobody in charge but the national committee chair. Like the national committee chair essentially has pretty much complete freedom to try to push uh, the brand that they like. When there is a president in office, that relationship gets way more complicated because effectively presidents uh, appoint the chairs of national committees. They can also replace them if they want to, and they do. Um, and so the national committee essentially becomes an agent working on behalf of the president. And there's sort of roughly two versions then of what can can happen. One version is where the president looks at a national committee and thinks this can be very helpful for my larger political goals. Um, sometimes that's re-election. Sometimes that is actually growing the party in Congress. I mean, they're not just sort of like self-centered actors, um, but they will often then use the national committee to, you know, promote themselves, promote their interests, and make uh, and sort of try to shape the the, the party brand in their image. Um, a good example of that is the RNC during the uh, Reagan administration, where they really go out of the way to sort of present the, uh, the Republican Party as Reagan's party. They actually start calling it that in, in their materials. Um, that is probably fine. Um, sometimes not so much like Clinton did this a lot in uh, the first two free years of his term. He actually had, uh, the DNC spend lots of money, um, and resources promoting his, uh, policy agenda and then, uh, promote his reelection very early on, like the year and a half before, um, uh, 1996. Um, that was quite controversial within the party. Um, there's other moments where presidents essentially completely neglect their national committees. Um, usually that happens when presidents just don't really see a big benefit of having a big partisan organization push partisan messaging. Um, often that will be when the party's already doing quite well in Congress. So if it has nice majorities in the House and Senate, um, it is in the White House because there's a president of their party. Usually they're not that concerned about having the national committee do even more party sort of activities. Um, and to the extent then that they, um, you know, start to ignore the, the, the organization, uh, the organization usually declines quite dramatically. And so there's one of the sort of themes in the book is this really weird and very ineffective uh, um, sort of long-term strategy of the party builds up its 
publicity role uh, during an out period, right, when it's not in the White House, then it successfully wins a presidential election. For a while, maybe the new president might use that organization still and sort of keep it alive. But then over time, the president just sort of kind of loses interest um, and the organization declines very dramatically. And then the next time they lose an election, they have to rebuild it almost from scratch, which takes a lot of resources and time. They build it up again. President doesn't care. It goes down. Um, And that's a kind of a weird strategy in the long term. I think it sort of reflects the fact that presidents do care about parties, but only if it's sort of necessary to care about them. Um, it's not purely just a, like they're selfish or they just don't care. It's, it's more that, you know, presidents have lots of things on their plate. Um, caring about their party usually is part of it, but not unless they need to care about it. Um, and so, you know, they, they often will sort of just, you know, stop caring about the party, stop uh, investing in it. Um, when things seem to be going well. And the downside is that things never then continue to go well that long. Uh, Um, Absolutely is the case. And and I want to get to sort of the the sort of last 20 or 30 years, because there's been, you know, a lot of back and forth in terms of who's in office and who's out of office in House and in the Senate and in the White House and stuff. But before we do that, I, I we've sort of talked about the conclusions of your book, but not necessarily what you did in the book. And what you did in the book was compile a very complicated and, as you note in the book, hard to assemble data set to try to see this relationship between between what the party was doing during particular administrations and you know how they were operating in terms of trying to brand and coordinate um and how they were you know maybe not being helpful or not helped by the folks in the white house can you talk about how you went about this research and and what it was that you composed into the data set ultimately because as you know the papers aren't public yeah so there's sort of uh, two uh, main sort of main methodological approaches that are aligned the 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 bulk of the uh, the book is qualitative historical case studies. And so it, it charts the entire history of both the DNC and RNC from uh, 1912 through 2016. Um, and that was a lot of work and also difficult to get um, access to, uh, you know, uh, actual primary sources because the national committees are not government organizations. So there's absolutely no rules about what they have to um, compile, what they have to share with the public, what they have to make public after some kind of period of time. There's just no no rules about that whatsoever. Um, the result is that there are essentially collections often related to uh, committee chairs who basically were just given lots and lots of boxes when they left the national committee and had to figure out what to do with that. And so uh, in, in sort of the positive version of that, they then at some point made a donation to a library, you know, a university, the uh, congressional collections or something like that. Um, that made it very time consuming to have to travel around, but at least possible to sort of get some um, uh, collections. Not everything is public. There was one case where um, Bill Miller, who was the RNC chair in the early 60s, um, he left the uh, RNC to become uh, Goldwater's running mate in 64. Um, he pretty quickly after that donated his papers to Cornell University. Um, and he did so with, uh, uh, which is totally allowed, but with like a specific requirement that if you wanted to access his RNC papers, you have to have permission from the RNC. 
and that rule still applies today. So I went to Cornell and they were like, yeah, we can't show it to you unless you get permission from the RNC. And the RNC was like, we don't know. No. Um, and so essentially <laughs> there's no way to, yeah. <laughs> so that's the kind of sort of headaches you run into. Um, and then some things were just never shared at all and they're just not, not available. And maybe there's like a garage somewhere with, with lots of uh, internal documents. Um, but it, it, it was very hard to sort of get a consistent uh, um, sort of sources and similar comparable sources throughout the entire time period for both, for both parties. Um, so I did the best I could with, with what I could get my hands on. The other side of it, which is a quantitative analysis, um, is an attempt to essentially come up with a comprehensive and consistent way of measuring uh, what the national committees were actually doing. And the way I did that was by essentially collecting every New York Times article that mentioned either the national committees or the chairs from 1913 up until uh, 2016. Um, and that's tens of thousands of articles. Um, so it was quite a lot. A bunch of those were not actually about the national committees doing things. So they might be like obituaries or wedding announcements. I saw a lot of those um, for like people who work at the committees. So I had to uh, essentially go through them one by one to um, code whether or not they were actually about the national committees doing something and then what they were actually doing. So were they engaging in like branding activities, service activities? Um, uh, I had a little help from some uh, great RAs at, at, at Fordham, uh, but the actual sort of like coding for specifically what activity was described, I had to do myself, which was time consuming. Um, but the nice part about it is that it actually does provide a pretty nice, consistent measure of what both committees were actually doing, uh, which allows me to look at sort of generically across the entire time period under what conditions uh, we see the national committees become more or less active in the branding, uh, but also allows me to really focus on short periods of time and sort of, uh, uh, and sort of illustrate uh, quantitatively, if we go from one chair to the other, do we see an increase or decrease in line with what um, the historical evidence seems to suggest. Um, and so that's been kind of fun because you, you know, there's certain cases where it seems like there's less activity, but it's hard to know sort of like, okay, well, can you actually prove that, you know, consistently without just like anecdotal evidence? Um, and so the, the data set helps me do that. And, and what did you find? I mean, there's a lot in this book and, and I'm not going to ask you about everything that's in the book, but I'm, I mean, obviously as a student of the presidency and the parties in the United States, I found it very interesting, but as you're looking at all of this different kind of data, both the, the sort of qualitative case studies, um, that are, you know, sort of going through administrations, periods of administrations and the party's activities during those administrations, but also the the sort of longitudinal study that you were able to put together. Did you find anything that surprised you? Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, there were some things that, that were sort of... Um, I, there were a couple of things that, that, were, that were spreading. One was um, just seeing how creative they were able to get with political communication. Um, so there were a couple of things that you come across that I came across over, over the many decades I was looking at that within the context of what they were working with, like what was actually possible, they were actually often pretty creative. So there were these ideas of like, Pretty simple things like um, at some point they had what was called speech kits, which were basically these boxes of pre-written um, sort of paragraphs about specific topics. 
and they sent these, uh, the Democrats did it in the 50s, early 50s, where they sent them to every single candidate running in like congressional elections or, or statewide elections. Um, and basically sort of explained like, you know, if someone asks you a question about healthcare, all you have to do is just like take the little card about healthcare and just put it in your stump speech. And that's helpful. It's like it makes life easier for us candidates, but it's also a very smart way of trying to sort of coordinate uh, a consistent message because you're almost sort of like, without really outright doing it, you're trying to sort of come up with a cohesive, consistent um, message. Um, the Republicans in the sixties came up with a thing called comment, which was started out as a radio show and then became a TV show later where every week they basically created a program, um, interviewing Republican politicians in Washington, DC. And it, you know, it had a nice sort of like flow to it and they picked the topics and they picked who, who they wanted to talk to turn into a program and then sent that free of charge to radio stations and TV stations across the country. And those stations could either just play the whole thing. Like from start to finish, as like a here's the Republican Party's position on what's happening in the world, or more interestingly, they could cut out the interviews and use it in their news news programming, because often these stations wouldn't have like reporters in D.C. or would be expensive to try to get um, footage, and this was a, a cheap, easy way for them to get you know, a talking head from the party talking about something, but also the national committee then had complete control over what they actually said. Uh, they could reshoot it if they wanted to. They could only bring in the politicians they wanted to promote, not the ones they prefer people not think about. Um, so that was, that was kind of um, just really fun to sort of keep running into those kind of things. The other sort of surprising thing um, which is one of my favorite parts of the book is uh, Bob Strauss's chairmanship of the DNC. Um, Strauss was this fascinating guy from Texas who joined the DNC as uh, uh, basically a financial sort of guy during uh, the period after 1968. So this is when the party's a complete crisis. Um, you know, they lose uh, two presidential elections in a row. Um, still in the majority in Congress, but like major inter-party fighting about Vietnam, about civil rights, a really complicated period. And Strauss, after the 72 election, which is disastrous for the party, takes over as DNC chair and basically decides that because he doesn't care about policies and he doesn't really care about any of these conflicts, he's just going to make um, all the different Democratic politicians appear together and then pretend as though they're all in agreement and it's all fine. And it was an interesting version of branding where it's like the brand essentially was just like, let's just not talk about things. Let's just, you know, let's just have Ted Kennedy and, you know, a, a Southern Dixiecrat uh, uh, Democrat uh, appear together a bunch of times. And then people will just assume we're, we're you know, we're in agreement and everything's fine. Um, and that was sort of an interesting way of, of, you know, a lot of times when we're talking about branding, it's this idea that, you know, it has to be really conservative or really liberal. It can also just be kind of in the middle or almost meaningless, as long as it gives people a sense that they know what they're getting. Um, and, and that was an interesting way to, uh, that he at least tried to uh, fill that up. And, and so in terms of the, you know, sort of the historical trajectory, um, you talk about the fact that, you know, the in, the in party and the out party, uh, national party, um, operates differently. Um, what, what is it that the out party is doing, um, at the national level, um, that is distinct? And what did you see in terms of how out parties operated over time? So out parties are, are pretty consistent, um, in both sides for most of the period in the book, 
in trying to sort of um, come up with uh, a, a strategy on what to do. And so essentially they find themselves in a situation where you lost the presidential election. Um, that's not good. You want to fix that. Um, how you feel about that might depend on how many you've lost in a row or how bad the loss was and all that. But generally speaking, the goal is we need to we need to do better next time. There are voters that didn't vote for us in the last election that we need to bring back to the party or convince to vote for the party for the first time. But either way, there needs to be some strategy to sort of reach out to them. Um, often that's sort of in the eye of the beholder in the sense that whoever is in charge of the National Committee will have their own perception of what strategy will get you there. Um, often there's not necessarily just a, an actual correct answer. Like there are lots of different voting groups that you could potentially appeal to. Um, and so who you prioritize really depends on your own um, sort of worldview and your own idea of what, what is important. Um, but they subsequently then start working towards trying to reach those voters um, with the available tools that the party has. And so they have these different types of communication tools that I mentioned. Um, they will try to sort of ref that up, invest a lot of money into trying to keep get those things in sort of top shape and then uh, promote the message that they want to uh, promote to the voters that they think they can convince to, to come on board. Um, they also, um, and this is less about publicity and more about sort of intra-party politics, they often start organizing uh, committees within the national committee or sub-organizations that are given the power to set party policies. And the idea there is not so much that by having those uh, sub-organizations decide we are now in support of policy X, that that will actually happen. Um, we see this starting in the 50s within the Democratic Party. Um, at that point, you've got Southern Democrats in Congress basically in charge of the party uh, at the congressional level. Um the DNC starts having this organization that pushes very liberal policies. The Southern Democrats basically ignore that. Um, and so from a perspective of was, are these organizations successful in actually getting stuff done uh, uh, in terms of like legislation and all that? Usually not. But the goal is essentially to be able to say, we as a party have made a decision. We are now in support of XYZ um, and then use the publicity tools to promote tools to promote that. Um, and so and that's a very consistent thing we see in both sides throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even into the 90s. Uh, parties sort of you lose an election, you create an organization that is given the right to set party policies, and then you use uh, your publicity tools to try to promote those new policies to specific voters that you think that if you can get them on your side, you can actually win the next election. And that is distinct from what goes on when you're in the in office, because the president is head of the party. And to some degree, the the president is the one who is more or less driving the the sort of coherent policy agenda yeah, exactly um, and presidents have just different priorities in some cases like in some cases they really care about they themselves winning re-election which is obviously important but it's not the only thing that matters for other people in the party um, they also have to work with uh, people from the opposite party often like it's very difficult to pass legislation without some form of bipartisan support um, historically um, they might not like it when there is a, a national committee that's really sort of like loudly yelling about partisanship uh, and trying to claim ownership of things because that might make it much harder for them to do their job. And so we see often uh, that presidents are either very specifically using national committees to like really push for what they think is sort of 
the right legislation or the right policies or, you know, promote themselves or just downplay the entire thing and not have the national committees do that because they think it actually will undermine their their uh, larger efforts. And so all of this was, as you say, fairly consistent through the most of the 20th century. But then we get yes. into the last mm, 20 then years. Then it all falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> How exactly does it all fall apart? So there's a couple of things that are sort of happening together that form this sort of perfect storm where where this no longer works. One thing that starts to happen in the 80s is presidential primaries. Um, and essentially what that just does is it limits the amount of time that you have as an out party in particular to try to actually do all that work. Um, you know, traditionally you would have four years basically as an out party national committee chair to try to invest in your organization, rebuild, come up with a message you want to send, and then actually promote it. And as you get closer to the actual convention, that becomes trickier. Like that becomes something that, you know, maybe gets a little frowned upon, but at least you have a good free, free and a half years to try to actually do that. And we see lots of people, you know, at different moments in time, try to actively do that. Once these um, primaries become these really long processes of presidential candidates running in 50 states, trying to win different states and getting enough delegates to win the nomination, um, those candidates also start to announce earlier and earlier. And once those candidates are competing with each other, the national committee doesn't really have the space to step in and also try to sort of send signals. Um, and so, you know, you, you have an example like some like Howard Dean, for example, becomes DNC chair um, after 2004 election, has a very clear cut and, and, and sort of specific idea about what the Democratic Party should be, what kind of voters they should reach out to during the first two years of his chairmanship really was quite visible and, and invested a lot of time and resource in trying to do that. Arguably, at least in his perception in 2006, was quite successful in that regard and then basically disappears. Um, and the reason seems to be that, you know, from January 2007 onwards, it's Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards, a bunch of other people fighting each other, having these big debates about what the Democratic Party should be, the future of the party, etc. Um, and so Dean sort of just like, you know, disappears uh, uh, off stage. So that's one part of the problem. Another problem is uh, a change in media landscape. Um, this starts, I think, in the 90s with talk radio. Um, and then also with um, sort of cable news networks that have a sort of a specific angle. Um, that complicates the nature of what national committees are trying to do. We see this a little bit in um, after 2012 when the RNC releases the famous autopsy report. This is a report that the RNC comes up with where it basically says, okay, so we lost the 2012 election. Unfortunately, what can we do moving forward? And the, the autopsy report is basically, you know, there needs to be a, a more humane approach to uh, immigration. We need to be more open to LGBT rights. We need to be essentially a more centrist party on a lot of these policies. And that report is just blasted by people like Rush Limbaugh, uh, uh, the Fox News hosts and all that. And it just basically goes away. Like it, 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 it really is not executed, at least in terms of the policy side. They do do other things uh, in terms of like investing in the party. Uh, but the actual idea of like, let's change the image of the party, that, that goes nowhere. Um, and then, of course, um, around the same time, there's the social media explosion. Um, and, and we're in a bit of a weirder state now than when I finished the book in terms of like what, what's happening with uh, the, the you know system formerly known as Twitter. Um, but you have this situation now where suddenly, you know, 
loads of politicians and also non-politicians have the ability to reach millions of people for free um, in a way that was completely impossible before. And so one of the ways where the national committees had sort of the ability to take ownership of uh, that role of being like, we are the, the organization that needs to brand is because it, it was difficult, that it required investments, it required technological know-how, specialization um, to actually do that. There's one good example in the book where uh, in the 1950s, the DNC comes up with its own magazine that it sells. And so at newsstands, you could buy a Democratic Party magazine that sort of tried to put forward a Democratic position. That at the time was seen as this huge innovation that that really allowed the party to communicate directly to voters rather than through politicians or through uh, mainstream media. They had, I think, a run of like 60,000 copies maybe each issue, which at the time was quite a lot. You could reach... 10 times that many people now within seconds for free um, on, you know, all types of different social media platforms. Um, and so the combination of those things basically limited the amount of time that the national committees had to try to do their job in terms of branding. Um, and also because there are now so many other opportunities for people in and outside the party to try to do the same thing, they're basically just drowned out um, with, with political information. Um, and so the, the book ends basically with the argument that that branding role sort of is, seems to be just over now. So does that mean that the national committees themselves are over? No, they've basically sort of refigured out what they can do and what they're good at. Um, and, and, and they do so in an interesting way. They really have focused much more on the idea that, so the publicity part, that clearly isn't anything anymore that we can dominate, but there are certain things that are still difficult for individual candidates to compile or build up. And we can do that. One big part is just big data. Um, and so both the DNC and RNC have invested lots and lots of resources into trying to build up um, these massive uh, voter files, um, where essentially the idea is that they create all this information about voters across the country, how often they voted for Democratic Party, how often they voted, which party to register with, uh, if they've donated uh, to anybody at any point in time. And that gives you a really good sense of who to target in different races. And so the, the, the argument from the national committee side, essentially, we can be the, sort of the, the people who compile all this information, collect all this information and provide it then to individual candidates for our party uh, to sort of work with. And then you don't have to do that. Um, so the somewhat ironic ending of the, of the, the story in, in this book, at least, is that they're now really have returned to the idea of like a service provider, the idea that they're doing all these nice things and helpful things to candidates and no longer actually engage in the, in the branding role as much. So was Vivek Ramaswamy <laughs> doing the right thing by calling up Rana Romney McDaniel and asking her to resign? Or did most people who are watching the debate not know what he was talking about? I think most people had no idea who she was. Um, and, and, you know, this is, now, of course, not knowing who a, a national committee chair is doesn't necessarily mean that they're they don't matter, right? They can still play a play a big role. Um, but it, it, you know, the I guess it depends on what you think is going wrong for the Republicans um, in sort of the last couple of elections. Um, if if the argument is that um, it, it's all just groundwork and they should have a much better organization, then maybe blaming McDaniel is is sort of fair. Um, but if if we think the issue is you know, what is the Republican Party actually supporting? Um, what policies does it care about? Does it care about, you know, democratic uh, America surviving as, as a political system? Um, 
then McDaniel's role is, is practically irrelevant. And, and I mean, it, it, it just, it struck me as interesting. And I've been asked by one or two reporters recently about that particular right, um, yeah. request and, and that, you know, what is the role again of the national committees? Um, and so, you know, I, I'm sitting here in Wisconsin and I, I know from what students have told me about the campaigns they've been working on, how they were working in 2016 and 2020, um, particularly with regard to the Republican Party of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I've seen, you know, some of the filter down um, of what you have been studying about the National Committee's role um, in, in coordination um, or in, in fact, possibly being replacing the presidential campaign by somebody mm-hmm. who's running. Um, so yeah. I was I was wondering a bit about that as, you know, in this new era of being service providers. Yeah, and that, that the last part is interesting too, right? Which is the the, the primary uh, campaign part um, and the general election campaign part is not just um, sort of drowning out any information or making it impossible for national committees to play that branding role. It also encourages and to some extent just sort of forces presidential candidates to build up their own machines um, to win elections because uh, in the primary states, the national committee isn't going to, can't do that for them because then they would have to do it for everybody. Um, And so they build up these really big organizations, raise lots of money, you know, hire lots of people. And then they basically keep that machine running throughout the general election, Um, which also it used to be the national committee role. Like it used to be that once you're nominated, the national committee is the one that's going to organize your campaign and sort of do all the work for you in terms of um, getting all that um, out in the field. Um, and so that's an additional sort of uh, issue with the with them having to reinvent themselves, essentially, where it's like even that mostly is no longer in place. We saw that a little bit with Trump um, in 2016 because he didn't really have much of an organization at all. And so once he got nominated, he the RNC sort of stepped in and, and took on that responsibility again. Um, but generally speaking, you know, the the you know the, again they have their own. Um, um, versions of these organizations now, um, which also, you know, uh, forces them essentially to think much broader in terms of like, what, what, what do we actually add to the political system? So they have become service providers again. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. And they, to be fair, they always were. It's not right, that those right. services didn't exist or weren't important. Um, but there was this additional layer to what they were doing. Um, and that has, has largely disappeared. Um, and you know, the, one of the things that you might get from reading the book is, is sort of a, question of like who cares because there's quite a few examples uh throughout the book of national committee chairs being very excited about here's what we're going to do here's how we're going to remake the party and then failing um so like one one example that keeps popping up is the rnc in some cases like legitimately really really caring about trying to bring in uh black voters into the party um and and investing lots of uh, uh resources and and trying to really really you know make that a thing that is that is you know their core project and then failing so you could look at it and be like okay well you know so they stopped doing that thing that wasn't really that effective anyway and that's fair um but on the other hand it, it did reflect an actual attempt at sort of trying to become better parties in terms of like catering to what voters are you know looking for and and trying to appeal to people who aren't actively voting for you now that disappearing is concerning because then it just becomes a game of let us get our voters out right. and 
and just throw them what they want to hear rather than trying to come up with trying to reinvent the party essentially after loss. Um, part of that is also just how close elections are, particularly in the presidency now. Um, and so it's really not about, oh, you have to really bring in a crazy amount of new voters to win. You just have to flip 50,000 voters across multiple states to change the outcome. Um, but that lack of, of sort of, you know, the very traditional Van Buren idea of like you're competing against each other to come up with the best way to run the country. And if you lose an election, you have to come up with a better argument. That disappearing is, I think, really concerning. Yeah. And that that certainly also means that there's a stasis with regard to like where the party sit. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, RNC, the Republican Party didn't have a platform in 2020. Um, which had never happened before. Um, But that that is, you know, a a very extreme illustration of just like, you know, there's no interest at all in in figuring out, okay, well, what are what are we going to do moving forward? Um, Because the argument is just, well, we're better than the other side uh, or the other side is so terrible that you can't possibly want to vote for them. Um, And that's sort of the end of it without, you know, policy messages and, and yeah. what it is, what it is that our individual members of this party stand for and yeah. are interested in pursuing. And I'm not sure if a Republican platform in 2020 would have made the Republicans in Congress much more effective right now. But the fact that there is no to-do list, uh, seemingly, I can't imagine it helps, you know? Probably not. And it seems like things are very complicated in Congress right now for the Republicans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Given the past week of fisticuffs and so on. Yes. And I don't know when this will come out, but it sounds like regardless, it'll still be probably, <laughs> relevant. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Boris, what are you working on now that, that we've solved the problems of parties in the United yeah. States? Yeah. Um, so the big project I'm working on now is a book uh, project with uh, Matt Lacombe. Uh, Matt's uh, done a lot of work on the NRA um, and some other um, uh, stuff. And uh, we started working together. We've been friends for a long time. We started working together a couple of years ago on an article that just came out in Perspectives, where we looked at the um, sort of early stage uh, partnership between gay rights activists and unions in um, the Bay Area in, the, in uh, California in the 1970s and in the UK uh, during the minor strike in the mid 80s. And that was a sort of a started out as just a, a, a project where we were like, that's kind of interesting that those two sort of connections were made. Um, in the in the US case, it was uh, people like Harvey Milk working with the Teamsters, which in the early 70s was not the most obvious sort of like relationship. Um, and so we, we just tried to figure out sort of like what what did you need to do to make that work and what sort of predicts or could help predict, you know, the circumstances in which we can see those kind of um, uh, partnerships arise. And then as we were finishing up that project, we started thinking like, oh, it'd be nice to do a book. And um, we're, we're moving in a direction where the question is sort of how do groups that are not actually part yet of the political system, like not actually taken seriously or, you know, listened to, um, how do they find themselves their way into that? And we think the goal, the, 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 one of the sort of explanations there is forming partnerships with existing groups and trying to sort of figure out, okay, how does that actually work? And under what conditions would an existing group even be interested in talking to a group that doesn't actually have any um, sort of standing yet? Um, we're very early stage there. We got a, we're very lucky to get a Russell Sage uh, grant for that. Um, and so we have money, um, although not much time to uh, do archival uh, work. 
Um, so we're working on that for the coming year, year and a half. Um, and, uh, and then after that, uh, we'll actually write it. So it's going to be a while before we, we can promote that one. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I'll expect you on the new books network when, when, yeah. when it comes out, that would be great to talk to you about that. Um, so I, I would like to thank you, Boris Hersink, for joining me today to talk about national party organizations and party brands in American politics, the Democratic and Republican National Committees, 1912 to 2016. Um, it's published by Oxford University Press in 2023. I assume one can purchase it at Oxford University Press. One website. can. I believe Amazon has it, too. Um, so I don't th- like there are options. for Amazon. Bookshop.org? <laughs> yes, bookshop.org. There we go. There we go. Um, so thank you very much for joining me today, Boris. <laughs> Thanks for having me.